The following podcast is a Dear Media production. And just like that, your favorite besties and tastemakers, Benito Skinner and Mary Beth Barone are back. Did you miss us? You know they did. Join us every Wednesday on your way to Sephora to hear our witty, ridiculous and irreverent musings on life, the universe, existence and of course what we currently ride for. You're going to absolutely live slash die for this podcast. You might even, dare we say, ride for it. Welcome to Real Pod. It's your host, Victoria Garrick Brown, and this is the podcast where we hold nothing back. Oh, so we're getting deep, huh? I really cried for 12 days straight. Why do I want to be perfect? There's nothing in my life that is perfect. Every week, I'll bring you honest, unfiltered, and eye-opening conversations to help uncover the real in all of us. I crave the type of content that you're talking about. I actually felt insecure. Oh my God, am I going to cry? Let me just unload everything. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes every Wednesday. Leave those filters at the door because it's time to get real. Welcome back to Real Pod, everybody. I hope you're having a lovely December. This has been such a fun month. I've been traveling, spending time with family. The work season is winding down and it's just, it's joyous. I can feel the holiday joy. Today we are bringing you a very special conversation with a very special guest, Today's guest is Shanta Lecker. Shanta is an anti-oppression facilitator and educator. She's a transracial international adoptee, immigrant, South Asian American, and queer cisgender woman. And Shanta's experience living in a diverse blend of sociopolitical climate has informed her culturally responsive approach to anti-oppression education, facilitation, and media. I met Shanta in a super unique and cool way, and her and I are going to share that story at the top of this episode, so I'll save it for then. But I know that you're going to enjoy this because these are really important conversations that we need to be having, and not just when it's a certain month or a certain week, but like all the time. And It's something I want to be better about on my platforms. And Shonda's been super amazing helping me figure that out. And I'm super grateful that she took the time to come on RealPod today so that we can do better. And without further ado, we're going to jump right in. So please help me welcome my friend, Shonda Lecker. Shanta, yes. welcome to RealPod. Thanks. I'm so pumped that you're here. I'm grateful that you asked. I'm super excited to talk to you. I feel like our relationship and how we found each other is pretty special. And mm-hmm. even today coming and then looking at the email this morning, thinking, oh, it's about to be four years. The time flies. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. And so thank you for for sending that just to give me a, a refresher. So how I met Shanta was... I was speaking at AU Prolax four years ago in 2021, and it was after I spoke and I said hi to everyone and I flew home. I saw I got this email and it was like at first glance pretty long. And I was like, oh, my God. My first thought was panic. Like I said something (laughs) wrong. I did something wrong. Like this person hates me. And then as I read it, I realized that it wasn't that. And it was that you were coming from this place of, I don't think we look like each other. I don't think we have similar experiences. Yet 
I did find parts where I related to what you were talking about. And I think there's room for you to grow and include more people into your conversation. And then from there, we hopped on a call and then we've kind of kept up and had a few calls here and there throughout the years. And here we are now. (laughs) Yeah, so wild. It feels like a lifetime ago. Now that I can, I got to give you some context for this. So about a year prior to that season with Athletes Unlimited, I left a job that it was, I mean, a lot of things that were not great. I ended up involved in a lawsuit as a plaintiff due to various things that occurred. And, you know, like I'm completely allowed to talk about it. I don't love to because it's very triggering and upsetting. But when I was at AU, it was sort of a, a crossroads for me. You know, I was like at this place where I was immersed in the best lacrosse I've ever seen in person, right? Like Taylor Cummings and Marie McCool and Kayla Trainer, these were like my idols, even as a coach, just in terms of what they can do. And I was there and I was like, I just don't think I can do this anymore because this environment in itself feels unhealthy for me after what happened for the, the prior two years. And and so the reason that was such an impactful moment for me is I remember distinctly there was this exercise. I think it was at the end. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it involved some reflection. And I don't remember exactly what the prompt was. It was the thought, the anxious or negative thought that keeps recurring for you. Right. And so for like four weeks at this glorious lacrosse season with the best of the best that I was like super grateful to even be invited to be there. I had been thinking, I don't belong here. And in the past, that had always been this imposter syndrome thing. You know, like, you'll be fine. Like, be resilient, like always. You're strong. You'll be okay. Like, you'll make it work. And I think in that moment, for some reason, (laughs) I really flipped it. And instead of feeling like I don't belong here is some kind of anxiety, you know, I really looked at it more like an affirmation. And I think... In that little critique of your presentation, which is all that it was, really, it was kind of like an invitation, you know, Mm -hmm. I think I really just realized, okay, wow, I have to find a way to accept this, even though coaching has been my life (laughs) for years and and find a way to accept this and put my emotional health, my mental health first. And so, yeah, that's the context, because there was a really I mean literally abusive workplace situation that I was coming out of. And so I was trying to transition back into coaching when I met you and got to, you know, experience that. You know, everything is divine timing. Like you had to have had that experience. Not that we hope that anyone has an experience like that, but it leads you to then have like an awakening. It could have been me. It could have been anyone. It could have been a book you read. But then there's people who hear the same words or read the same thing, but they're in a place in their life where it doesn't flip the switch for them. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, though, the thought of I don't belong here. Why is that the thought? And what is it like rooted in? Was it rooted in? I mean, at the time, I think it was definitely rooted in those feelings of experiencing harm. I mean, literally experiencing various forms of harm in the form of tokenism, in the form of racial gaslighting, in the form of verbal abuse, in the form of incessant microaggressions. And for the longest time, uh, and this is really common. So I talk about this because I feel like this is a common experience, not because, you know, I'm like unique in this way. This is unfortunately very common. But for the longest time, 
those things, all that harm was something that I would internalize, take responsibility for, and then decide, I'm going to make this work, you know? And, and sort of that sentence, I don't belong here, had always been this feeling of like, I'm going to overcome this. You know, it's like this individualization that happens in our society. And, and so that change was really important to me because I think I'm at a place now where if I feel like I don't belong here in the moment, I trust my instincts, I trust my intuition, and I leave. Hmm. <laughs> you know? I, the word you used of affirmation, I feel like just even that, you read you read the sentence differently. Like, I don't belong here, and I don't have to try to force myself to fit in mm-hmm. or conform to wherever I am. Mm-hmm. So when you wrote me that email, I'm curious what the hope was. And does it have to do a lot with the work that you're doing now, which is obviously you don't have to do this, but choosing to educate, choosing to help make the difference and elicit change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was connected. I know that our stories in community and collectively are important and they need to be heard. And I also understand how the power hierarchies work socially and politically. And and so there's kind of this constant pull in my brain, like how can I make sure that I'm able to communicate these things to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. How can I make sure that I'm including all kinds of people in this conversation? And when I see sort of like, a, a little window open, which is sort of what that felt like. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm just going to jump through it and let's see what happens. Yeah, I know <laughs> in the email you said something about you saw a video I did with Skylar Baylor, who's a trans rights activist and amazing. And he's been on the podcast. And you said, well, since I saw that, it makes me think you would be open to these types of conversations. And you were correct. And I think there is such a fear of doing the wrong thing. And I want to assess myself by saying the problem isn't like, how can white people feel more comfortable? I think it's trying to be cognizant of not centering yourself in a situation that's not about you. Like I got sent a big bag of makeup the other day. So generous. All the shades, half the box is too dark for me. I would love to give that to someone who would use it. I'm just going to throw it away. And I remember sitting there for like 15 minutes trying to think about the sentence to be like, I'm like, should I say any of my dark-skinned queens. I'm like, is, does that not sound right? Should I say any, like, I didn't know how to write it. And then I finally was like, clearly I'm just trying to do a good thing. If I say it wrong, I say it wrong, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. But I think people shy away from even trying to do anything like that because of the fear of saying the wrong thing. And then as a result, it perpetuates the silence, which then helps keep alive this system of oppression that we live in. Right. I recently just got the cutest and most comfortable slippers for winter. They are the Sakura Mule Slipper from Vionic. I got them in the color wheat. They are actually adorable, but the best part is not how cute they look. It's that they're from Vionic, which means they have Vionic's exclusive Viomotion technology. And the Viomotion technology is what truly sets Vionic apart. Bionic began by revolutionizing medical orthotics, and today they continue to use that science to engineer shoes that leave you feeling energized and confident all day. I feel the difference. I have the flattest feet. And one of the sneaky ways we don't have support on our feet is when we're at home walking around. That's why I love my Vionic slippers. But Vionic doesn't just have slippers. They have heels. They have booties. They have sneakers, summer sandals, chunky loafers. I mean, the list goes on and on. 
They're cute. They're practical. They have all types of shoes and they have the built-in and exclusive Viomotion technology. Also, Vionic offers a 30-day guarantee so you can wear them, love them, or return them for a full refund within 30 days. There's really no reason not to try because you can get a full refund within 30 days. You can head to www.vionicshoes.com and use code REALPOD15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order when you log into your account. That's one-time use only. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of my favorite sponsors, Element. I am obsessed with Element. I cannot get enough of Element. The reason I love Element so much is because Element helps me stay hydrated. It helps anyone stay hydrated. And it's an electrolyte drink mix because electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause headaches, cramps, fatigue, brain fog, and weakness. And I feel like with all my travel and with increased workouts and jet lag and just a crazy busy day and week sometimes... I feel those symptoms, and when I drink Element, I swear, I notice the difference immediately. Each stick pack delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes totally free of the artificial colors or the other dodgy ingredients or just lots and lots of sugar. An Element is formulated for anyone, no matter what your dietary needs are. I always keep a packet of Element in my purses, in my fanny pack, in the kitchen. My favorite flavors are raspberry and citrus. Max also loves Element. Trust me on this one. I got also got Aubrey and Wood hooked, which is always fun. Go to drinkelement.com slash realpod to receive a free element sample pack with any order when you purchase through our URL. That's drinkelement, D-R-I-N-K dot com slash realpod, drinkelement.com slash realpod to receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through our URL. The sample packs are great because you're going to get to try all of the flavors. And guess what? Element is totally risk free. So if you don't like it, you can get your money back, no questions asked. Just head to drinkelement.com slash realpod. That's drinkelement.com slash realpod. Well, a lot of things come up there. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me everything that I did wrong because that's why I love you. <laughs> no, you didn't. I don't. I wouldn't look at it that way. I definitely try not to think about things in terms of like binaries, you know, and so getting out of this either or thinking and kind of leaning into both. And sometimes you can even literally change the way that you say things instead of saying but say and even, you know, in describing that conflict. How do I navigate this online? I want to do this but I don't want to do this, but I don't want to do this, right? It's like, okay, take a breath, right? Let's talk about racism. So systemic oppression, systemic racism is dehumanization at its core, right? And so in order then to be anti-racist, in order then to dismantle these systems of oppression, we have to humanize each other, right? And, and so when you think about it that way, you realize, one, there is no right answer <laughs> because there's no way that you're going to write something in one post that will sort of, you know, quote unquote, correctly or quote unquote, appropriately address all black women. Right. <laughs> yeah. And when we think in those ways, that's really monolithic like that. So that that's not something you did wrong, but it's something that you can take into account later in terms of how am I addressing my community? Right. What does my community need? What does it look like? And who am I really talking to? So that it's not about my own reputation, right? It's much more about caring 
for the community that I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. And I think when we think about things that way, one, it's like common sense. Of course we want to humanize each other. But two, wow, if we humanize each other, that makes this way more complicated because I can't think about how am I going to do this in the right way for the South Asian community? That's ridiculous. There's literally dozens of countries, right? And when I say South Asian American, that's a different experience. When I say adoptee, that's a different experience. So yeah, so sometimes thinking about it in terms of humanizing our language when we think about inclusivity can really help, you know, because at the end of the day, it's like decenter that reputation piece, right? And if you do make a mistake or somebody calls you in or calls you out and embarrasses you, it is what it is, life, right? Yeah. Then like this is total coach mode, but you know who John Wooden is? I went to Yeah, I do. Right? Okay. (laughs) So former athlete, you know how how he gets thrown around. So it's weird to reference a, an old white guy. I know, but I went, I'm a Bruin. So. <laughs> and for everyone, this is an iconic <laughs> basketball coach. I think he's the one who said, if you don't prepare, you prepare to fail. Yeah. Everyone's heard that. And that's John Wooden. <laughs> so my favorite Woodenism is doers make mistakes. And so embracing imperfection is really important in everything that we do. It's when it's harmful right? That we really need to take into account. Am I going to allow myself to make that mistake again? Right? And then two, is it a pattern? And and so I'm not saying just make mistakes all day and, and never, you know, think through that or educate yourself. But I do think that we have to have grace for ourselves in order to learn. Yeah. And, and that is something that that I've always felt, even when I was coaching lacrosse, you know, Mm -hmm. embrace imperfection. (laughs) You mentioned adoptee, and I know you've been open online and with me about being adopted. Mm -hmm. How has that tied with your experiences shaped the way you approach the work that you do? There is a lot of layers to that. So (laughs) well, one layer, I think, actually directly ties back to what we were talking about, this affirmation. Well, what became an affirmation later in life? I don't belong here. Right. So as a transracial international adoptee, so all that means is I was adopted by parents that don't share the same racial identity as I do. My family, super interesting. We've got all kinds of ethnicities in there. But objectively, when you just look at us, my parents are white and I'm not. And so transracial international, I was adopted from India, but likely Bangladeshi. So that's, you know, whole nother story. And so when you, when I, I will speak for myself, when I was growing up, my experiences with whiteness, and so I'm going to use these these words that I know freak people out sometimes, but when I say whiteness, I'm talking about this construct, right? In the same way that I talk about my South Asian-ness, these are social political constructs that we use to communicate with each other, but you're immersed in whiteness, right? So I was immersed in that. And so that whole, like, I don't belong here, affirmation wasn't an option. Like, I had to make it work. I was literally living in whiteness. I was completely immersed in white supremacy culture from infancy, right? I'll tell a specific story, if that's okay. I think it illustrates it better. So I was in middle school, went to a CVS. I grew up outside Chicago. And we were in, like, a little farther out suburb with a little less diversity, And my mom stayed in the parking lot, gave me a 20, and said to go buy a couple like two, two liters of Sprite. We were going somewhere. So I go buy it, paid with cash, didn't get a receipt. The alarm goes off as I'm leaving. And I'm in like sixth grade. So I'm even tinier than I am now. (laughs) (laughs) And immediately just froze 
And the, you know, somebody that worked there came over and was like, you know, just let us know. What did you take? And immediately just assumed that I was shoplifting. And it kind of escalated. And, you know, I had started crying and said I didn't take anything. And the manager came and told me to lift my shirt and lift my pant legs. And it was a traumatic experience, to say the least. Right. And it was 100 percent profiling. You know, I was in a very white suburb. I stood out. That was the assumption. At a point, I was crying so much. I think they were just like, oh, my gosh, let the, let the kid what go. What about the cashier who just witnessed you pay? They assumed that you must have hid something else? Yes. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So, so ultimately, I was just, you know, upset enough. They felt bad, whatever. They eventually let me go back, go to the car, and I'm sobbing and tell my mom what happened. And she was like, oh, I'm sure it was, you know, sure it was just a misunderstanding. And this is not to her fault. But just to explain that that way of growing up, it was it was like experiencing the world around me, which includes great things and lots of joy and also really horrible things like incessant racism. Right. Experiencing those things and then having to explain them to my own family. And so on some level, there is definitely just this very practiced right layer of explaining these interactions, explaining the way these systems overlap to white people and white folks like from a very young age, even though that wasn't great. You know, I would say this is not ideal. I think what I've done now is sort of like reclaim that practice, reclaim that ability, layer it with research and all kinds of other things. And and really, you know, like kind of just take that back, because I think for a long time that was extremely harmful feeling the need to explain those things. And it still happens, unfortunately, with various people in my extended family. But now it's like, I'm going to do this on my terms because I do want people to understand this stuff and I want to see change. And I think I have, you know, a very learned level of empathy for lots of different people because of the way that I grew up. Yeah. Whenever we have our sessions or we've talked in the past, I feel like I usually come in really buttoned up with like a planner, what we're going to solve. And Mm then it like completely goes (laughs) in a different direction (laughs) for the better. And I mean, if I give an example, because similar to you giving an example, I think it's not fun to talk about. And I feel uncomfortable talking about it because Mm -hmm. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I care so much. But, you know, but I remember we had a session once before my wedding because I was really feeling a lot of insane guilt and embarrassment about my privilege and a display of the things that I have that others don't. And it was really difficult for me. But like, I felt this, yeah, this guilt and this shame around being able to have this beautiful wedding and not everyone does. And putting that on social media, you know, I recognize how that could seem tone deaf or piss people off or whatever. But in our session, I remember saying something like, it's not relatable and I'm always relatable and I want people to feel like they see themselves in me. And you just kind of waited till I stopped talking <laughs> and said, Victoria, you're not relatable to everyone. <laughs> and I remember I was like, what? I'm like, I am. I'm like, I'm just like everyone. You're like, you're not. And I really like needed to hear that. And it's, it's, it's such a truth. And I mean, it's that to me is just a testament of like when you do your work with people, it isn't like you have this, you treat everyone the same. You recognize, you know, the differences that everyone has with what they're building, what they're trying to create. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And 
Yeah, I mean, I remember that. And I remember it being a little bit of a jolt. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe how shocked? Like, it's like, as if I never knew that. It's crazy. Yeah, but it's okay. God. And so here, this white is women, when it, man, white women. I mean, you said it. I was going to say it. Please say it. You know, I always tell you this. I want you yeah. to tell it like it is. I'm not going to get my feelings hurt. I need it. For sure. Well, here's the thing. I mean, one, okay, let's be clear. When I say privilege in a session, I'm talking about societal positionality. So that's really important to to recognize. A lot of times people hear that word and it's like, they're gone. They're not going to talk to me anymore because their life was hard and they're not privileged. When I talk about privilege, sometimes I even say positionality because it's helpful to people to understand. I hold tons of privilege. I hold class privilege. You know, like I have a degree from a a four-year university. I'm cisgender. And so I hold hold that privilege in, in a lot of ways in our society. So it's not meant to be some kind of accusation. You know, when we talk about privilege, it's about understanding the hierarchies that exist socially, politically in our country and just being real about it. Right. And and so I think like that was probably part of what we talked about as well. Just putting that into context. And like you said earlier, decentering kind of your own ego a little bit Mm -hmm. and thinking about, okay, how can I think about this maybe more systemically? And that's then going to drive how I problem solve or how I make decisions later, you know? Yeah. So yeah, white women, I'll be honest with you. My first instinct, if a white woman that I do not know <laughs> invites me to do any kind of work, any labor, whether that's, you know, <laughs> emotional, mental, physical, whatever it may be, my first instinct is no. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I, because of lived experience, because I have, it has taken me a while to get there. But because I have, again, experienced tokenism and microaggressions and gaslighting in very real ways, and, you know, I understand the systems at play. And so it's not about, like, some vendetta against white women. You know what I mean? It's about understanding that if you hold certain societal positionality, you're socialized in a way to feel entitled to certain things. Mm -hmm. You're socialized in a way to center yourself in a lot of things, right? And it takes a lot of work to reckon with that. Yeah. And everyone's not willing to do that. And so there's a hesitancy with me. And I express that to you from the from the get-go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's been a through line just so far of our conversation today is how can it be less about you preserving your image, but about how to actually create change and give back to the community? So if that's one very, very, very important thing, what are some other things you see that are misunderstood? Hmm. Interesting question. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a big one. It's like, are we making change or are we really worried about how we're talking about things that need to change? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Are you dismantling racism or are you just talking about the times that you noticed it? You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) Not the same thing. I think that's one one huge one. Another thing, you know, I would say is is critical thinking is really sort of foundational for everything that I do, which in my mind, you can define it a lot of ways, but I look at it as just being able to hold multiple things as true at the same time, right? So that goes back to that both and not thinking in binaries, right? And and really embracing that multiple things, even if they conflict, can be true at the same time, right? And so, for example, you're talking about your wedding and, and you said, it was difficult. And then you kind of like backtracked and you're like, wait, no, this is not difficult for me. Like, I'm fortunate. Okay. Things can be difficult for you emotionally. And also 
this, right? Mm-hmm. And also I'm acknowledging maybe I have this class privilege. And and so this larger experience is is something that, yes, I have because of my positionality, right? And that is kind of oversimplifying it, but but the point is we can think about multiple things as true at the same time, right? And a lot of times when we release ourselves of like being right mm-hmm. and we just humanize what we're doing, it really does change what we're able to see and imagine. Because a lot of times we get into this like, we're dismantling racism work and it just feels like we're, you know, even dismantling. It's like we're taking something apart. Yeah. Right? And and we're trying to break this this oppressive system. But we're also building, right? We're creating, we're imagining. And and those things for me are what make this work feel liberatory, right? Yeah. Like I'm not gonna be engaged in this work at this level if all I'm doing is tearing things down and pointing out mistakes and managing crises. That's so not me. <laughs> you know, I am here to inspire people. I'm here to help other people see how those multiple things can be true at once, imagine better, and then work towards it, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's like the biggest misconception is that we're taking something away when really what we're doing is we're expanding and we're building and we're imagining. I love how well you know how your mind works and how you work best. I'm seriously so inspired by you being like collaborative mindset and the and mindset. And that's a whole separate conversation. But I love the way that you know yourself because a lot of people don't. And then I think that can, you know, help make sure that everything that you do, you feel in alignment with. Now, I do think there are people who, myself included, can feel this hesitancy of like, you know what? And I'll speak for myself, too. We'll just keep using our own examples. Mm -hmm. It's like for me. I want to make sure that to the best of my ability, I'm making sure all people feel like seen on my page or welcomed. I can do better. I can do more. And I also feel like I don't want to say like this is my chosen thing. But a lot of times I think to myself, I founded a charity. I put so much time into that. I haven't been paid a cent for it. Like that's my cause. And like through the hidden opponent, we do so much with DEI and and we really want all these athletes to feel like they have a home here. And like sometimes I feel like you can only do so many things. And of course, like, do I wish we didn't have guns? Yes. But can I take that on to the extent that I have taken on this mental health crisis issue? Like, I don't think so. But so my point is, I at least feel sometimes like I can't be a warrior for every single thing. Mm -hmm. So how do we do enough for all the important things? Mm -hmm. Well, let me just start by like zooming in for a second. You are enough (laughs) as is. (laughs) Step one, right? We are not enough by doing. I think that's really important. Again, with just the, the personal philosophy. And I appreciate you saying like, you know, you know yourself really well because that took a ton of work, you know, <laughs> big proponent of all kinds of modalities in terms of of understanding oneself and, and putting work into that. Yeah. I mean, for me, anti-oppression work is a lens. So it's not necessarily about me having my hand in every single cause and every single issue. You know, do I think there are certain sort of civil responsibilities that we have when we live somewhere? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So I do think that that's important to me. But there are limits even to that, 
right? So we can go go out and tell everybody to vote for everything and and call the representatives and and be really adamant about that. And that's important. And there are people doing that, right? And we also need storytellers, right? And we also need people advocating for mental health among athletes, which that group, when we talk about student athletes, the disparities are there. It's visible, mm-hmm. right? When we talk about the NCAA, when we talk about the NFL, these are systems that have been founded by the same principles as a country that was founded on genocide of indigenous peoples and enslavement of Africans for hundreds of years. And so I know that feels like a leap for some people. <laughs> so I don't want to scare anyone away from, from understanding this. But again, it's that both and. and. And looking at the context, looking at that historical context, gives us the ability to then be like, okay, I'm going to understand this better so that my lens sort of tints a little differently. It shifts a little bit, right? And then I can start making decisions that, you know, like you said, align with that value system that should be evolving over time as you learn, right? Because so many of us were educated in ways that were very limited, you know? I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, <laughs> I I didn't learn about my own country's history. You know, I didn't learn about the history of Bangladesh. I didn't learn about the history of Pakistan. I I didn't even start to learn about that stuff till I was like 23, right? I learned about mine, but it was all wrong. <laughs> did you see the Bo Burnham stand-up that he did like in COVID? Well, anyways, he has this song. I'll send it to you. You'll, I think you'll really enjoy it. But I remember I, I always thought, Columbus found this empty mm. island and yeah. and all the pilgrims came over and they had a feast and then they <laughs> said, let's start a world. And then you get older and you're like, that's not what happened. So I feel terrible that you didn't get to learn this as you grew up and people were taught things that weren't true. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And that unlearning, right? Because that's kind of what you have to do once you start to realize, oh, wow, this was not only inaccurate in a lot of ways, but very incomplete. And I like to think about these things as incomplete because, again, it's like embracing the conflict. Instead of being like, this was wrong, I'm going to erase it from my memory. It's like, well, that's impossible. We can't do that. We're wired a certain way, right? (laughs) I like to think about it as incomplete. It means that we have more learning to do and more education to do collectively. And that then is going to inform our decisions. It's going to inform what we invest in, right? It's going to inform policies that are maybe created by something like the hidden opponent in regards to who is included in this initiative, right? Who are we really advocating for? Are we taking historical inequities, for example, into account when we build those policies? And so it's about, for me, seeing these things as a lens. Then we can make decisions. We can invest, right? Uh, we can spend our privilege in ways. We can spend our literal money in ways as well um, and invest in that change over time. And it's way more important that it's it's something that's sustainable, something that you can do consistently. Then you can take breaks from it, you know, and take care of yourself as well and sustain that over time. That's going to make more change than hopping on, you know, something for two weeks because there's some horrible instance of racism in the news that activates a bunch of people like that's the reality that we live in that happens and how are you going to sustain that how are you going to show up a year later right yeah today's episode is sponsored by ag1 
I just love AG1. I cannot say enough. And you know what? It's actually a great gift for the holidays. Max and I, two years ago, gifted AG1 to our sister-in-law. She's just so active and so into nutrition. And we thought it was like the perfect gift because we're obsessed with it. So that's also a good gifting idea. And I also gave my dad AG1 and my older brother AG1 and Max's brother. So we've we've done a lot of AG1 gifting because we love it and we know it's going to make such a big impact into everyone's morning and daily routines. So don't sleep on AG1 as a good gift, okay? Even for yourself. Now look, AG1 is my favorite because it's a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And since 2010, okay, that's a long time, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition. They're continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. The keyword baseline health, it doesn't matter what your exercise routine is, what your eating routine is, what you look like. AG1 is for everybody and it elevates your baseline health. It is that thing that I take in the morning. It is so, so good for me. It has so many important nutrients. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide my body with the support it needs. And that's why I've been a partner with AG1 for so long. If you want to try, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com slash realpod. That's drinkag1.com slash realpod. Check it out. Just thinking about incorporating partisan, bipartisan, when we talk about political, people get terrified because they hear the word political and they're like, I don't want to engage in that. Or, you know, I'm not really political. I don't see myself that way. Or, you know, I don't want to offend so-and-so or I don't want to ostracize somebody. That a lot of the time is us talking about partisan politics. When we're talking about human rights, you know, like human rights should not be partisan. So there are like plenty of things that are political that aren't partisan in my mind, because I don't think human rights should be partisan. I don't think as a queer woman, for example, my right to all these other facets of being a citizen in the United States should be partisan. I don't think it should be something that we're divided on by party. Is that kind of the reality in a lot of ways? Yes. But again, that imagining it's like that's that's not the world that I want to live in. And so sometimes it's helpful to think about that stuff is like, OK, we're not going to talk about partisan politics, but we can't not be political. That's just not realistic. And and I think that's been coming up a ton. Yeah. Lately. It makes me think about abortion rights. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I'm sorry. How is this a public opinion? <laughs> right. And again, that's humanitarian, right? We're talking about human rights. We're talking Mm -hmm. about a human being's right to their body autonomy, to their bodily autonomy. And because of a lot of history, and so that's where that context becomes so important, we live in this cis-heteropatriarchal society, right, that deems those things potentially something we can vote on, which feels like if you just zoom out, you're like, objectively, this is ridiculous. Why are we voting on this? Right. But at the same time, that's the reality that we're in. So there's that both and again, we participate in these systems. We have this civil responsibility and we can dream of this world where we have the right to our own bodies in so many different ways. Right. And so I'm always in this gray area, 
you know, and sometimes people are like, Chanta, calm down. But that's where I, that's where I live. So. I, can you bring me to the party? I literally have, I'm, I live in black or white and mm-hmm. it's just so unhelpful for me. And I'm so aware of it. But honestly, this has been, every time I speak to you is so inspiring. But this word and, I just love it. I'm literally after this going to make it the screensaver of my phone. And, <laughs> and, and, and. I need that for everything. And to go along with that, I think, and I've even had little glimpses of this throughout the questions I've asked you. Of course, the desire to the end of this podcast episode is, so Shanta, what are the five things that everyone should make sure that they're doing to like be inclusive and make sure they're working towards change and, you know, all these important things. But as you've said (laughs) in many different ways throughout this interview, it is not that simple and it is so layered and there's so much that goes into it that it's not five things we can check off a list and be done with. It could be if if you choose to be ignorant and kind of, I think about this too, like it doesn't affect my day-to-day life. So I don't have to, but there are people who don't have that choice. It affects their everyday life. It's in every conversation they have. And every time anyone sees them or talks to them or judges them based on how that they look. And so, you know, what I take away from this is it's going to be a constant learning of what can I read? Who can I meet with? You know, I'm sure a lot of people will hopefully want to reach out and and work with you and schedule an appointment, um, which would be amazing. One major thing to to kind of take away from this, if you're starting to maybe dive into that unlearning that we talked about earlier, maybe you're continuing it, maybe you're figuring out how to sustain it. I think one really important thing to take away is rest and pausing and allowing yourself to digest things and process things is a part of this work. And, you know, it's something I literally do in sessions when I have group sessions. There's uh, time to pause and like drop your shoulders and relax your jaw and, you know, give your body a chance to digest this because none of us are made as human beings to learn about centuries of racism in these books and workshops and things like we're not made for it 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 hurts <laughs> it's painful and uh for some of us that have experienced it literally triggers past harm and and all these things you know so that part is unavoidable like that's going to exist and we have to make sure that we're prioritizing rest we're prioritizing care within the community that we're in even just sitting here with the two of us like this is our little community how are we caring for each other? How are we holding space for each other? And that sometimes gets missed when we're like, we got to do, 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 right? Yeah. And we're in this society that's like production is success. It's like, yeah, no, us being healthy and taking care of each other in community, especially when we're working towards such important things, like that care, that community care, that personal care even. I hate the phrase self-care, so I'm going to try not to say Self-care specifically because I have a reason. It's the, the individualization thing again. You know, I can self-care, 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 and still exist in a society that oppresses queer folks and brown people and adoptees, you know, and, and that's not going to change it. So that's why I get away from that as being sort of like the central piece mm-hmm. here and why I talk about community care. Because I think self-care as an end goal is like a very privileged thing, you know? Yeah. And if you're experiencing those systems every day, which we all are, by the way, then 
you know, sometimes that self-care is almost like self-defeating. And again, it's, it's sort of internalizing all of these things that are not in your control. Whereas if you're going to work in community to dismantle those things, okay, this makes more sense. Me personally, I'm not responsible for this 400 years of enslavement and then all of the things that happen after that are replicating all of the, the practices and behaviors and attitudes during enslavement. I'm not responsible for that personally, maybe, right? And I exist in this world in this country where I want to see those behaviors and attitudes and policies and practices change because they do impact my life. You said something about how things don't maybe directly impact you, you know? And the more you learn about these systems, so the more you learn about systemic racism, the more you'll learn that as a white woman, it does directly impact you. In all the beneficial <laughs> ways, right? Is that what you're about to say? It does. And you're yes. So, oh gosh, you're so right. And like, and so that removing yourself as a white person from these systems is like, okay, well then who's at fault for this? It just appeared out of nowhere. That's when people start getting into, I guess here's an easy way to explain it. I ask this question all the time. Just like throw a, a poster up of all of the presidents of the United States from, you know, the beginning of time. Is that just a coincidence? Is that what you're telling me? Right? <laughs> There's no oppressor. That's just a coincidence. <laughs> You see what I mean? Yeah. So like that's when you remove yourself as a white person from that system, it's like, oh, this just kind of happened. This just exists. I'm not responsible for it in any way. But it is impacting you, right? Yeah. You're impacted by that every day. You're so right. God, that was such a dumb thing of me to say. No, no, no. <laughs> not dumb. I'm going to fully leave it in because that's the whole point of this. But <laughs> yeah, it's like thinking if it doesn't affect me in the negative way. Oh, I just live my happy life. Yeah. Why do you live your happy life, Vic? Because of because of the color of your skin and because of the family that you had and because of the family that they like, you know, it just well, keeps going. Hold, hold the phone. So not the color of your skin, but because of white supremacy culture and how pervasive that is in our social political structures. So to flip that, mm -hmm. right? Nothing's wrong with my skin. You know what I mean? Nothing's wrong with my brown skin. Nothing's wrong with my queer identity. The problem is the system in play. The problem is the racism, right? The problem is the anti-LGBTQ, I mean, it's just everywhere now, but all that yeah. rhetoric and, and those policies and things, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, you, you see what I mean? I see. It's the system that favors and oppresses different types of skin, not the actual skin. Exactly. Because really that system is made up and it's hard for people to accept that. But that's what we are getting to is understanding that these racial hierarchies were created to kind of hoard power. Citizenship is an example I use a lot because I think it's very easy to identify where that positionality was built. OK, so there was a time early 1900s where you had to identify as white or black in order to be a citizen of the U.S. So. One, we're like, wait, what? This doesn't make any sense. So then what is everybody else, right? They had a petition to be one or the other. And that very much dictated the rights that you had in the U.S. So if you were an Asian American man, for example, trying to petition for citizenship, you're going to petition in the courts to be identified as white, which they're then going to say no. So you can't. So not a citizen. But then here's the kicker. 
if you change where you are in the U.S., that will change your race. Literally, you can be in one state and the law says if you are one eighth ancestry African-American, then you will be black on your documentation. Move to another place, says one sixteenth. Go to another place, it says one drop rule. Point being, you could literally cross state lines and change your race, mm. right? So this racial hierarchy, along with a lot of other hier- hierarchies that exist, but this racial hierarchy was constructed. This is something that was built and then continually reinforced over time, right? Yeah, fully. I mean, that is just non-disputable. <laughs> right. I love I love a Shanta truth bomb. As, <laughs> as always, I'm... I've learned so much from speaking with you today, and I'm so inspired to keep becoming better in all the ways. And where can people work with you if they want to work with you? I normally don't ask my guests this, but I want that to be possible. If Are you accepting new clients? Yeah. And they can follow 7525 Impact. Mm-hmm. I'll link all that in the show notes. If they yeah. want to work with you and consult, have you consult with them? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Thank you so much for asking. Is there an email or a best place for them to go? Yeah. Best place is you can go to the Instagram. That's 7525impact. You can also just go to my website, 7525impact.com slash get started. There is a little button that just says schedule your first session with Shanta. It's 30 minutes that I don't charge so that we can introduce each other. Shanta, right? you should be charging <laughs> for that. I mean, here's my thing. It sometimes involves me me saying no. And okay. so, right? So that's important because like I said earlier, I can't, you know, like you were like, whoa, it's like a jolt realizing you, you don't relate to everyone. I can't necessarily connect with everybody. Maybe I'm not the best voice for everyone, right? So I'm really honest about that. I certainly don't. I don't cater to the idea that like more business is better. I really focus on quality and I want to make sure that that relational aspect is going to be a part of the work that we do. God, I love it. I've got to re-listen to this and take notes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on here and always being just the best to speak with. And thank you for sharing your knowledge with all the Real Pod listeners. I know they'll love it. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. It's just like scratching the surface of so many things, but that in itself can really help people start to activate and think critically more about the world that we're navigating every day. And and for me, that is, I mean, that that is like just being a human being. Yeah. You know, I mm-hmm. wish I wish we we could all think a little more critically about the things that we see and hear every day. Well, thank you so much. I definitely need to have you back. We'll have to do another get dive even deeper. We're like an onion. We're gonna keep <laughs> we're gonna keep going. Thank you so much, Shanta. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of RealPod. If this hit home or helped you in some way, send it to a friend, a teammate, roomie, share the love, share the realness. New episodes of RealPod come out every single Wednesday. So make sure you are subscribed to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To leave a rating or review of the show, head to iTunes and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you. Not to mention, you can stay connected with RealPod throughout the week, seeing behind the scenes info and sneak previews of upcoming guests by following the at RealPod account on Instagram. All information about today's show and guests will be linked in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening. I love you guys so, so much. Let's go dominate the day. And as always, keep it real.
please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.